morning. Happy Mother's Day. Today's scripture reading comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 to 14. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Two weeks ago, we started a new sermon series called uh, Faithfulness in the City, and we're continuing that now as we focus our next several weeks on one of the most defining features of our daily lives and of our ministry as a church, and that is life in the city. What's it all about? What are its blessings? What are its challenges? How does God call us to be faithful in this very unique and particular context, life in the city? And so let's consider this second installment in this series as we look at Jeremiah 29. So let's pause and pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful that we could be together to hear from your word, to see each other's faces, uh, to be blessed by just being able to sing, lift up our voices, uh, know that we're not alone, but now we're looking for something um, distinct, um, strength, wisdom, and power from your word. And so come and do that. Uh, give us help in this time. And Holy Spirit, uh, speak to our hearts. Give us wisdom. Every person here, every person, including those at home following on our live stream, bless them too. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was a town mouse who visited his cousin in the country. After eating a simple lunch together, one consisting of acorns and roots and wheat, the town mouse shared stories of the luxuries and delights of city life. Come visit me in the city, he said. It's far better than this. The country mouse hesitated. He had never been to the big city before, but eventually he agreed. When they arrived at the mansion where the town mouse lived, they found an incredible feast at the table. Soon the two mice were eating up pastries and cheeses and jellies when suddenly they heard a, a menacing meow. What's that? asked the country mouse. It's a cat! Run! cried the town mouse as the two mice ran for their lives. They escaped just in time through a small hole in the wall. Goodbye, cousin, said the country mouse, panting and still shaking with fear. You may have big and fancy things that I don't have here in the city, he said as he hurried away, but I much prefer my plain food and modest home in the country. A simple and happy life is better than an extravagant one lived in constant fear. 
Ah, you know it. The well-known and beloved children's story, Town Mouse and Country Mouse. It's one that's been retold by Aesop and countless other storytellers. It extols virtues like contentment. It reminds us that there's no place like home. But if we listen closely, we might detect in this story a basic suspicion towards the city, its dangers, towards the snobbery of its people, perhaps. And it reflects an attitude towards cities that's embedded in Western culture, if we might take a second to detect it. Now, that's shifted, I think, in the last 20 years or so, but this anti-urban bias, as scholars and historians call it, is still prevalent in our times. And that's why it's helpful for us to learn or to, to relearn what God says and what God feels about cities and what he says about them in the Bible. God made cities. God loves cities. As we saw two weeks ago, heaven itself is described as a kind of city, heaven. Cities, let's be clear, aren't inherently superior to the suburbs or to rural towns in every respect. We're not saying that. But cities are unique. We saw last time how cities are defined by their density and proximity, the, the physical nearness of its people, and the mixed-use nearness of markets and parks and civic services and libraries and health clinics and schools and restaurants and places of worship. And we also saw how out of this elemental density and proximity found at the heart of cities, there's an array of blessings and challenges that emerge in city life. In other words, we're, we're packed in here so tightly that there's rich potential for community and for connection. But because of that same tightness, there's also the potential for friction, crime, paradoxically, isolation, and loneliness. There's rich potential in cities for security and refuge for cultural minorities, immigrants, lower-income folks, racial minorities, even single people. But cities are also marked by separation, segregation of these communities, ghettoization and tribalism. We're packed in here tightly in cities, and as a result, there's rich potential for creativity and collaboration and productivity new ideas and art and technology and culture, but for the very same reason, cities can become cauldrons of sin and idolatry. In short, cities, in cities, there's an abundance of community, security, and creativity, and also an abundance of conflict, segregation, and idolatry because, precisely because, in cities you find an abundance of people like you and me, beautiful and broken. The question then is what are we to do with these unique blessings and challenges that are presented to us by cities? How should we relate to the city? And here's the answer of today's passage. Three things. Number one, presence. Number two, peace and prosperity. And number three, prayer. We'll get to those three things, but first, I need to tell you a little bit of the background of our passage, Jeremiah 29, in order that we might understand a little bit of what's going on here. See, after hundreds of years of turning away from God, the people of Israel were subject to God's judgment and discipline. 
So in the 6th century BC, they were conquered by the Babylonian Empire, and thousands of God's people were deported from their homeland and sent into exile in Babylon. That's why a few times in our passage, for example, in verse 4, verse 7, verse 14, we're told that God carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. I mean, just imagine losing your home, your livelihood, and in some cases, your family, and being forced to live in a foreign land, one thousands of miles away, under oppression. It was simply awful. But God, being rich in mercy, took time and space to reassure his exiled people that the nightmare of exile would not last forever. Yes, there was judgment and discipline, but there would also, as always, be mercy. It wouldn't last forever. God would one day restore them. That's what verses 10 through 14 are all about. God's promise to bring you back from captivity. God would one day bring them home. But the big debated question was, when? How long would they be in Babylon? There were some prophets who were saying, not long. Not long at all. Maybe a year, maybe two. So just hold your breath. You know, hang on to the U-Haul keys. You know, don't give away your boxes on the GMH listserv community life, right? Don't bother unpacking your bags. Verse 8 warns the people of these false prophets. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Verse 9, they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them. The problem wasn't just that they were wrong about the timeline. The problem was that in doing so, they were downplaying the severity of Israel's sin. They were resisting repentance. You know, it's just, it's not a big deal. Just two quick years and then we'll move on. But God says, no, it's gonna be a while. So he sends the prophet Jeremiah to deliver, among other things, a different kind of message, a different timeline in the form of a letter. And that's what we find here in chapter 29. How long, how long would God's exiled people live in Babylon? 70 years. 70 years. That's what verse 10 says, about two or three generations. How long? A while. That wasn't what the people wanted to hear, not at all. But what was even more surprising to them was what God said about how they should spend those 70 years in Babylon. What should they do? Love the city. Wait, 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 what? Um, so should we just wait around and just let the years pass? Love the city. Wait, sh should we just huddle in our homes and, and sort of hide from those, you know, those bad guy Babylonians? Sh sh should, should we kind of avoid the corrupting influence of those pagans? Love the city. Dive into the city. Serve its inhabitants. Be the city. Okay, three points now about how we're to relate to the city. This is what Jeremiah says. Number one, presence. Presence. Notice the first thing that Jeremiah says to the people. Run for mayor. No, he doesn't say that. Change this rotten city. Uh-uh, doesn't say that either. Verse 5, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Here's the first step of faithfulness. Live. Get settled in, settled into the city. 
and weaved in into the life of the city like you're gonna be here a while. In other words, unpack your bags and be fully present in ordinary life. You heard that list that I just read, that list of commands, six, seven, eight different commands from Jer how ordinary they were, not profound at all. I mean, really, the sum of those things is just live ordinary life. Keep living and keep doing it in light of the grace of God. Listen, some of you need to unpack your bags. And I don't just mean literally. I mean, maybe for some of you, literally. I mean mentally, emotionally. Maybe you're just stuck, stuck, always looking back, that nostalgic yearning for what once was. Different relationships, a, a, a different town maybe, a different chapter of your life perhaps. Or maybe you're always looking ahead, anticipating every day almost the next thing. The, the next job that might be around the corner, that the next opportunity, the next move. I, I'm not saying looking back or looking forward is bad. Don't get me wrong there. But there's a way in which we can be glancing this way and that way so much that you don't even realize how detached and how unrooted you have allowed yourself to become. You're not really here. Others of you have been here a long time, and you're just flat out tired, and you, you've packed up your bags and your heart for a different reason. I mean, you're ready to go to the Bahamas, right? Get a break, maybe. I was noticing the other day uh, this nature show that was describing uh, what they call surface-dwelling fish. I don't know if you've heard of these guys. Uh, surface-dwelling fish. In fact, they're perfectly adapted to the way that they live, which is they skim the surface of the water, their mouths are actually turned upward. Really weird looking things. Mouths are turned upwards so that they can just drag their mouths, kind of like a blue whale does, drag their mouths and just swallow insects and different forms of food. And their fins are slung so far back they're not really used for swimming and propelling or diving. They're slung way back wide so they can just drag them. Just drag them behind them so they can cruise just under the surface without creating any kind of disturbance so that no one even knows you're there. Some of us that are living in the city are living life, life like surface-dwelling fish, right? Where you're just skimming superficially through relationships and moments and encounters with God or with other people, with neighbors, even with yourself, just sort of skimming the surface, and you've adapted yourself to maximizing that sort of non-committal superficiality, if you would. That might sound harsh, but I'm just, it's, I'm just talking about the fish, <laughs> right? just gliding through almost so that no one even barely notices you're there. Minimal disturbance. We tend to live superficially in our cities. Wherever we live, we tend to do this. We tend to be surface dwellers. But God, through the prophet Jeremiah, back in that day and even today, is calling his people to be fully present in their city. You see, what's fascinating to me is that the first thing that God tells them isn't, hey, touch down in this new city, go create 10 after-school programs. Or he doesn't say, all right, now it's, now's your chance. Go make that nonprofit that's going to transform the life of this city. You might do that, and that might be a good idea. But listen, the first thing that God says to his people is exhale. Do the ordinary stuff of life, but do it with an open heart and an open life. 
build houses, and settle down. Whether if God calls you to be in D.C. for one year or 20 years, or if your family has been here for decades and decades of years. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. In other words, make a living. Work faithfully day to day. And eat what they produce. Live, live in that exchange in community where you benefit from your neighbors, where you're dependent upon your neighbors, where your lives are intertwined and where you lean on each other so deeply weaved into city life are you. Marry and have sons and daughters and increase in number there. Do not decrease. Don't withdraw don't pull back. Don't disappear. Don't be a tourist if you're, in fact, a resident here. So Jesus is amazing because Jesus knew he would be here on earth only for a short time, a relatively short time. But he was always fully present, wasn't he? Touching the sick, a stopping for the downtrodden. One of my favorite stories where he's just taking this crowd of people through town and this little lady who was sick just touches his garment and he notices and stops everything to talk to her. Jesus is present. We're called to be like him. In the ordinary things, to just be salt, the salt of the earth as Christ called us to be preserving and flavoring the light of the world, shining light in darkness. Again, not, not with some grand, ambitious, moral crusade kind of a fashion, but just being a blessing in the things that you would already do for yourself, for your family, for your roommates, for your block. And to be so weaved into life that you become truly a part of the fabric of life in the city. And a person maybe asks, what does that mean? That we just so weave ourselves in that we begin to blend in and assimilate like chameleons. We just adopt everything that the city's about. And, and the answer is no. Clearly, in this passage, Jeremiah is talking to exiles. They know this is not their ultimate home, exiles. That's the mindset that you and I are called to as well. Fully rooted, fully present, and yet still different, holy. In, in fact, in the book of James and in the book of 1 Peter, in both places, New Testament authors call Christians at large exiles for Christ. It's part of our identity, fully here and yet not from here, living holy lives. And by holy, that means different. That means you're fully weaved into life, but you never lose your distinctive as one who's been transformed by the grace of God and one who's compelled to follow Jesus wherever he takes you. And we, when we talk about holiness, when we talk about the culture of the city, I know a lot of people immediately want to think about, well, that means maintaining a certain sexual ethic, and that means maintaining a certain standard of morality. And sure, that is true. But I wonder if we also think about holiness in these terms. What if Christians in our city were so holy with their generosity, with their money, that that's what Christians in Washington, D.C. were known for, always ready to help, to lend a helping hand, known for actually being consistently a notch below the living standards of their income-earning peers because they're giving away so much of their stuff all the time. What if Christians used their social power in, in such a holy way, different way, uh, that you actually see Christians diving low, not climbing up, but using everything they have to give away privilege to other people, to lift other people up without taking credit. How different that would look and feel. Christians who would be servants of others rather than of themselves. Uh, what if Christians in the city were 
known for their holy way of resting in a weary and fatigued city. Christians who actually took Sabbath in an eye-catching way, not as a drudgery, but as a joy, because we love taking breaks. We love being restored. We love laughing and playing because we love being human as God has created us to be. What would it be like if in this city, Christians were so holy that they loved differently? You know what I mean? Loved their their, not just their neighbors, their enemies. Loved across tribal differences. Reconciled with those that the other people in your tribe, political, ethnic, cultural, or otherwise, would normally shun and set aside. How dare you talk to that outcast? No, 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 no. I'm going to be like Jesus. So no, not just fully chameleoned into city life, but different, holy, loving, as Christ has called us to love, yet rooted, settled in, weaved in, present, not surface dwellers. Number one, presence. Number two, peace and prosperity. The second thing that God calls his people to in verse 7. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. If God was telling the exiles to unpack their bags, so to speak, and to be present in the city, he was also here telling them to be servants of the city, active contributors to the well-being of the city. See, people seek a lot of things, seek a lot of different things in a city like D.C. Oftentimes people come, maybe you've come, seeking an experience, you know, where the city becomes just another part of my pursuit of a more fulfilling life. Or perhaps people seek a career. So coming to D.C. is something nice to put on your resume. Or we might seek entertainment, where the city sort of becomes an adult playground with all its amenities and clubs and this rising restaurant scene. And listen, none of these pursuits are wrong in themselves. They are part of the blessings of a unique place like our town. But Jeremiah calls us to something different. He calls us to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. It's an invitation to an entirely different disposition towards the city. Maybe a different one than what landed you here if you recently moved here. Or maybe a different one than one you've carried around in your heart for decades. Maybe a different one that's than the one that's instinctive to you. Maybe this is part of your growth and grace as you learn to follow Christ in the city. An entirely different disposition towards the city where we're not just using the city for our own gain, but we're serving the city for the common good. And the key to understanding this idea is found in the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word that's difficult to translate in English. It's so rich and multifaceted. Most commonly, it's translated peace or welfare or well-being. In our translation of verse 7, it's rendered peace and prosperity. You, you hear the translators just trying to grab a combination of words. Oh, peace. No, 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 no. One word is not going to do prosperity. No, that's not quite it. Let's just throw in a couple words. Peace and prosperity to translate shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. And that refers to the flourishing of the place under God's care. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga explains the concept, the biblical concept of shalom like this. The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets called shalom. We call it peace, 
but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. In other words, God calls these ancient city dwellers to pursue the spiritual, relational, economic, cultural flourishing of the city in which they live. And he calls us to be about the same as well. Helpfully, theologians and teachers have described shalom almost like a tightly woven fabric uh, where different strands of life, again, economic and spiritual, relationships in a neighborhood, religious life before God, economic life, again, cultural life, artistic life, all these different strands and threads are weaved together to make a single coherent social fabric. And I was thinking about that metaphor watching my daughter Elena uh, crochet. Uh, brought a little sample of one little piece that she'd been working on. And as I watch her sort of tightly uh, threading these threads, I don't know a thing about crocheting. I don't even know how to describe this, so here, here we go, right? Tightly threading these, these pieces of yarn in and out of each other in different colors here, yellow and white and red-orange. And putting together this thing that holds tightly together like a fabric. And, and, and this is a little picture of shalom, where life is meant to be woven together, one to another, people and institutions, and a life before God. And yet the Bible tells us that sin and evil and injustice has essentially ripped, ripped that fabric. Don't worry, Elena, I won't do that. Uh, torn the threads apart, pulled them apart, so there's torn holes in the tapestry uh, ripped gaping parts of emptiness in the fabric that is life as it was meant to be. Uh, where people are going without, where lives are tattered and broken and bruised, where relationships are estranged, and where material resources aren't equitably distributed, and where people share not harmony but hostility, and where people are far from God. And so what are we called to do? We're called to be weavers. That's a term that columnist David Brooks has used in his writings, weavers, where we're almost repairing the rippage, where we're kind of jumping on in there and sort of like the mice in Cinderella, <laughs> threading ourselves, in fact, back into the tapestry, where we become repairers, reweavers of the shalom that's been torn. This is what it means to seek the shalom, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, uh, where we're diving in there, and, and in doing so, we're beginning to weave all the blessings that we've already identified as the unique blessings of a city, and and repairing all the unique challenges and brokennesses of a city. So we weave community, don't we? By being a friend to a neighbor, building relationships in our apartment buildings and across homes in our block, where we extend hospitality to those perhaps who are suffering from loneliness, which is in so many ways one of the deepest, most terrible scourges in city life, where we're building relationships cross-culturally, bridging divides, sometimes that run generations deep, uh, pushing against that segregation and, 
and ghettoization that's so common in city life as we've talked about, bringing people together, again, in your building and on your block, where you're sharing meals and you're inviting people to your table, uh, where you're having conversations with people that you otherwise wouldn't if the grace of God weren't the power compelling you to, to do so, uh, where maybe you're organizing neighborhood watches so you're watching out for each other and where you're loving each other, strangers who become friends and friends who then become family. You're weaving community. Or maybe you're weaving security. Remember, as we said, cities uniquely being havens and refuges for people that otherwise are vulnerable, cultural minorities across our society. And so you're weaving your resources and your time and energy into city life so that they too are neighbors and you too can find a home here. Uh, weaving in your material resources or maybe your educational knowledge, tutoring a young child that needs a little bit more help and support. Uh, maybe you're weaving in the, the, the time that you have to just walk alongside a, a person that needs not just mercy ministry in general, but needs a friend to walk them to that social service because they need support. They need a cheerleader and not just things, stuff, or money. They need you because it's what they most lack, relationships and not just resources where you're weaving in your skills of knowing a, another language perhaps in order to offer support to someone that just feels foreign, almost exiled from their country, some of them who have literally been exiled from their homelands, weaving security, weaving community, weaving creativity, where you're pulling your gifts together to come up with new solutions and ideas, you know, that after-school program thing that I mentioned, how about that? Or that new nonprofit that serves the underserved. How about that? The ways in which you can deploy the resources of your workplace to serve your neighbor, to make this city flourish. The ways in which we pull together our faith, where churches begin to collaborate together and work together, uniquely able to do so because we're in close proximity to one another in a city like ours, weaving creativity, weaving the social fabric that's been ripped apart by sin and self-centeredness and evil. We are called to just this work. And you say, gosh, even going down that list, there's, there's just so much. It, it just feels overwhelming. And I just want to say, listen, I get it. Pick one thing. One thing, and start there. One step, start there. One thread of the garment. One thread, and start there. Because you are not individually responsible for the entirety of the city and its fabric. In fact, earlier, Jeremiah invited the exiles to continue investing in their work, planting and farming, and in their families, sons and daughters, so this isn't saying that everyone needs to just drop everything, every other calling in life, and become full-time community organizers. That everyone needs to drop everything, neglecting other corners of your life, only to become full-time stewards of the city. Now, we need to push out to do more than we typically do do, but one thread, one step, one act of faithfulness, one sacrificial commitment, one way to budget our time and energy in a way that works for the common good. And do you see what changes? It's not just what you do, it's also how you see the city. See, what changes is where you're starting to see this place, the blocks around you, the town that you maybe whiz by so fast, and you're beginning to not just see it like an urban playground, or like a sort of a personal theme park, or just as a, a, a backdrop to your resume building, but rather you see it as a place and a people to love, to serve, to give yourself to. You see, if you only see the city as a political battleground, then you will hate the city when it begins to oppose your party or tribe's agenda. If you only see the city as a resume builder, then you will hate the city when it stops advancing your career goals, frustrated with it. If you only see the city as an urban playground, then you will hate the city when it no longer entertains you. 
If you only see the city as an unwelcome substitute for suburban family life, then you will hate the city when it stops supporting your family's immediate needs. But if you start to see the city as something and indeed someone to be loved, someone that's beautiful and broken just like we are, something that deserves compassion because it already has won the heart of God, then you begin to love it differently because you see it differently. Jesus said this about himself. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is a call simply to love and serve as we have been loved and served. Presence, peace and prosperity. I'm going to move quickly now. Prayer, number three, prayer. The third thing that God calls us to do is to pray for the city. Second half of verse seven. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Friends, one of the most important things that you can do in loving our city that we must do is to pray for our city. Maybe this strikes you as an unremarkable point. Well, ho-hum prayer, well, of course, right? But don't forget that Babylon was the city of the exile's oppressors, a nation that had just conquered them. This was an enemy city that the exiles were called to pray for. And what that tells us then is that even the simple command, pray to the Lord for the city, would have required enormous focus and spiritual resolve. This was an invitation to something dynamic and even radical. And someone says, prayer? There are just too many needs in this city, so little time. Uh, we, we've got to get busy. We've got to do something, not just pray. We gotta, there's work to do. Listen. Friends, prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. Prayer unleashes across our city what our city most needs, God. Prayer acknowledges that the challenges found in our city are in fact God-sized problems. And we're powerless to fix them by our own wisdom and strength. Prayer calls upon the very same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead and calls on him to come and to raise dead schools to life, to raise up dead civic institutions, to raise up dead unneighborly hearts, including our own hearts. Prayer calls on God to do in our city nothing less than the work of resurrection. And so prayer is among the greatest acts of love that you can offer to a city that you're learning to love. Calling on God to do a work of resurrection and we, we believe that he can do that then we'll start to turn to prayer as a first resort, not as a last resort. And we'll pray even as Jesus himself prays continually for us. As he intercedes for us, we intercede for others. And so we begin to pray for shalom to be reweaved across our city, for the flourishing of relationships praying against conflict and crime, praying for refuge and safety of vulnerable populations, for immigrants in D.C. and for the homeless and those mired in poverty, praying for schools, for Tubman Elementary and Bruce Monroe and E.L. Haynes and Roosevelt and Czech and other schools, praying for the city's economic health, for the just use and, and, and just distribution of, of resources, praying for our city's political order and its leaders, Mayor Bowser, Ward 1 City Council Member Brian Nadeau, Ward 4 Council Member Janice Lewis George. We pray for churches as well, First Church SDA, in which we, from which we're renting right here. Zion Hill Baptist Church down the street, District Church around the corner, Kelsey Temple Church of God in Christ, many other churches. And we pray in the quiet of our homes, and we pray with others, and we pray while walking to work and while riding the bus. We pray while running an errand, and we pray and we pray like God is here and God loves this city.
presence, peace and prosperity, and prayer. Let me simply apply all this practically like this. Two things I want to commit. Okay, what is, what's one thread? What's one thread for you this week, this month? Two things. Number one, take one step towards your immediate neighbors. One step. So for some of you, that might mean, you know what, I don't know a single person's name on my block or in my apartment building. I just zip in and out for you. Your big step for this coming week. Get to know one person. Say hello. Start a conversation. Get their name. You, you know what? I li I, I'm not good at names. Uh, it, years ago, when we started getting to know the neighbors on our block, I started writing their names on a piece of paper. And Paula and I, we put that on our refrigerator. And then when our neighbors started coming over, we thought that looked a little creepy. So we... <laughs> moved that list into the cabinet. It's like, it like a hidden secret. It's not a secret. We're just like, we really want to know you. We really want to know your names. And so we're getting to know, and, but we need help, so we got to Maybe you need to do that too. Get to know people. So for you, one step might mean just having a conversation for the first time. For some of you, it might mean inviting someone into your home for a meal. Having them at your table so that you have more chances to hear. Tell me more about your, where are you coming from? Tell me more about your family. You know, uh, work, whatever, like we'll get to that. What do you love to do? What do you love to do? Where you have a, a real conversation because maybe you've passed by each other a thousand times. Sometimes, I mean, almost literally passing by constantly, but you don't know a thing about that neighbor. Invite them into your home, have a meal with them. Maybe some of you have done that. Maybe your commitment needs to be from here on out once a month, like a normal rhythm and routine. You're looking for someone to have a meal with. It might be a coworker. It might be a, a next door neighbor or across the street neighbor or someone in your building. Or maybe it's a roommate that you live with and you don't know. An intentional meal once a month. Maybe that's your call. One step, wherever you are in your stepping. What's your thread, right? Relationships weaving community on your block, over your table. The second thing I want to call you to do, pray. Pray. Pray for the city and commit yourself to praying for the city. And you say, well, how can I do that? I don't know what to pray for. Guess what? I've got something for you. Here's a book. It's called Five Things to Pray for Your City. We've got a few of these. I've got 25 of these. Wanted to give to you. I'm going to leave them on the back front table on your way out. I would love for 25 people to say, you know what? I'm not promising yet that I'm going to be praying X number of minutes or hours, but I just at least with an open heart want to look into what praying can look like. It's a really good resource. If we run out of 25, we'll get some more but I want to give you something concrete, something practical, so that you can begin to pray. Again, I'll leave them out on the table. You can grab it on your way out. Don't be shy. I want you to gobble this up. And let's learn to pray for our city. In closing, I want to leave you with one final word from this passage. And it has to do with hope. Why was it that God provided his people with these words of hope and assurance. Verse 10, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. Why did God give these words of assurance? You know why? Because these exiles in Babylon were afraid. And it was that fear that made them want to check out, be a surface dweller, not invest. What do you mean, God? What if God's not here in Babylon? What if he's in the other city that I need to get to? Jerusalem. Maybe, what if that's where I need to be? What if by staying here, I'm missing out on God's dazzling plan for my life? What, what if by investing in the shalom of this city, 
I'm, I'm missing out on something else that I need to be doing for myself or for my career or for my family. I, I don't think I have time for this, God. By calling me to do this, you're calling me to reduce my life, right? You're, you're decreasing me, not increasing me, right? And you can hear the, the concerns and the fears and the hesitations and the reasons why people withdraw, not just people back then, but even people here and now, the fears and anxieties today that, that yank us away from loving the city, from being fully present, from praying for our neighbors, from seeking their shalom. But here's God. I'll be with you. No, 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 but, but God, what, what, what if it's hard here? I'm not sure I can take hard right now. It seems like it'd be easier over there. That's why my bags are so packed. It seems like it'd be easier over there. Verse 12, you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. I'm not gonna abandon you. I'm gonna be near to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Uh, but God, what if it's a mistake that I'm here in the first place? I'm the one who carried you here. Uh, wait, 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 God, God but what, what if this wrecks my future to be here or to invest in the shalom of this city? Because I can't do everything. What if I miss out on opportunities? What if, I, what if I wreck my future? God, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a hope in the future. Are you sure, God, what, what if living this way, what if being present here harms me vocationally or, or I don't even know what, but I'm just scared. I know the plans I have for you to prosper you and not to harm you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. I will be found by you if you seek me, if you seek the shalom of the city, if you're present here, if you serve faithfully, if you love with a big heart, if you know that you're loved by Jesus, the one who restores us to every good thing in God and Christ. Oh, friends, this is an invitation to the great adventure of what God specifically may have in store for you, in you and through you. If you would be here for as long as God has you here, and none of us are gonna prescribe how long that needs to be, but as long as you're here, if you're present, prayerful, and if you're pursuing the peace and prosperity, the shalom of God's city, what would that look like if every single one of us, and you all in your live stream too, were committed to loving in this way? What would that be like? Let's find out, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word, helping us to think differently, thinking, helping us to think like we don't naturally think or normally think. Jesus, we love you and we need you. We ask that you would come and give us grace to love this city well, to be a servant like you've served us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.